Hello, and thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas. Today is July 7th, 2020, and today I'll be talking about yesterday's Supreme Court decision in Chiafalo versus Washington. It deals with the peculiar way that we elect presidents in this country using an electoral college rather than a direct popular vote by the people. I'll look at the specific piece of the Constitution that was at issue in the Chiafalo case and explain how that provision ties back to a crisis of conscience by an Alabama elector back in 1952, and how his experience and this provision together can affect our national election this year and the next few election cycles, given the way the court approached this issue. I'll start the way the court did in the Chiafalo opinion yesterday, which is by looking at the relevant constitutional provision. Under our Constitution, of course, we, the people, first words of the Constitution, do not directly vote for president or vice president. We do for everything else. We do for statewide office. But in our constitutional system, we vote instead of directly for president and vice president for a slate of electors. Every state uh, appoints a slate of electors, and then those electors cast ballots. They are formally counted under the Constitution in January, and a formal winner of the election is declared in time for an inauguration to take place in late January of the year after the election. The key provision as to the appointment of electors is short and sweet. It's Article 2 of the Constitution, and it says, Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors. Pretty open-ended. Such manner as the legislature thereof may direct could include all manner of things. Uh, it's a broad delegation of power, unlike some others in the Constitution that are more specific in what can be done and how it should be done. And that's the basis uh, on which the Electoral College selection of electors has gone forward since the drafting of the Constitution. Other provisions related to this have been amended. This particular part has stood unchanged all that time. And it stood largely unaddressed by the courts until 1952. It was the uh, very contentious election. President Truman, unpopular because of the way the Korean War was going, had decided not to seek re-election on the Democratic ticket. And that side of the election was wide open. Candidates from all across the country, north, south, east, and west, were seeking that nomination. And uh, in Alabama, Edmund Blair was his name, was someone who was up for consideration to serve as an elector for the state to go and cast a ballot for the state of Alabama in the electoral process. He was bound at the time by a pledge to the Alabama Democratic Party. The party required, if you were going to be an elector uh, to represent the state of Alabama, if uh, the Alabama popular vote was won by the Democratic candidate, you had to pledge to support that candidate. When you went to go vote uh, as an elector for Alabama, you pledged in advance to vote for whoever had won the election. There's a Republican slate that took a similar slate, uh, took a similar pledge if a Republican candidate won their election. Mr. Blair didn't want to do it. He doesn't explain exactly why in the opinion, but it's pretty obvious why. There were a lot of Democratic voices trying to be heard in that election. He wanted to keep his options open to see how things worked out and to see how they interacted with whoever the ultimate Republican nominee would be. It looked like it'd be Dwight Eisenhower and ultimately was. The issue goes to the Supreme Court very quickly so it can be resolved in time for the Alabama elections, and Mr. Blair loses. The Supreme Court goes back to the language that I read at the beginning of this discussion that says that the state shall appoint, and using the words of the Constitution here, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct the electors. It had the power to let a party require this kind of a pledge. 
To be sure, it constrained uh, how the elector would actually cast his vote, but it said the Constitution doesn't say anything about that, doesn't say anything about political parties at all, as a matter of fact. The legislature has a broad power in this area. It's entitled to turn to political parties for help, and it's entitled to rely upon the way those parties decide to manage their affairs and require that sort of pledge. Nothing is said by the Supreme Court about this provision again until this year and this week, July 6th. What happened that gave rise to the revisiting of this issue in the Chiafalo case yesterday is the 2016 election. Very contentious, hard-fought dispute between Hillary Clinton for the Democrats and Donald Trump for the Republicans. President Trump, uh, a polarizing candidate, inspires a lot of passionate like and a lot of passionate dislike, did not win the national popular vote. But Senator Clinton won that popular side of the election, but he did win a majority in the Electoral College. Some electors felt very strongly about Mr. Trump being elected president and wanted to go against instructions they had received from their state to vote for whoever had won the popular vote in their state. The issue of the pledge to the party had already been resolved by the earlier case back in 52 involving Mr. Blair. The issue now was not a, a party administration, but whether the state itself could impose a fine on an elector who chose to vote in a way different than the popular vote of that state. It wasn't a lot, it was $1,000, but it was enough to get noticed, and it was a penalty, the power of the state to enact a punitive measure if something is not done according to law. The court reviewed the issue and concluded, uh, essentially 9-0, that the states had this power under the broad grant of power that we talked about at the beginning of this discussion, where it says that the state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. This is a permissible exercise of that manner, just as the pledge was in Mr. Blair's case, and these electors are going to have to either not serve or pay that fine. The uh, area of dispute, there was a 7-2 to two split. The dispute was not really over whether the state was correct. It was over how correct the state was. The dissenting opinion would have uh, gone on to speak to other parts of the Constitution besides the Article II clause that I've been reading during the course of this discussion. They would have also brought into the picture the Tenth Amendment, which generally reserves powers to the states that are not expressly conferred on the federal government by the Constitution. A majority of the court didn't want to go there, and Justice Thomas, joined in part by Justice Gorsuch, expressed that point of view. That pretty much settles the question as to individual electors. There are only so many ways the state or a party can try to influence and control how they vote when they come to exercise their responsibilities as an elector in January. But this provision that was discussed in these two cases is far broader in scope than simply issues involving individual electors. Recall it talks about such manner as the legislature may direct. There are at least two ways in which the legislature may direct the selection of electors that could have profound influence on how a president is picked in this country. The first would be if a legislature said, we are not going to have our electors vote consistent with the popular vote of our state. Rather, we are going to have them vote consistent with the popular vote of the nation. Whoever wins the national popular vote will win the electors of this state. Sounds a little out there, but at least 15 states have signed on to a draft, what's called interstate compact, an agreement among states, where that would become a binding requirement on states if they approved it. And it would essentially write the Electoral College out of the Constitution without having to amend it. If every state agreed to vote their electors consistent with the national popular vote, then the Electoral College would really become purely ceremonial. 
Um, interesting angle. Can the states enter the compact raises some other constitutional questions, but whether or not a state legislature has the power under Article II to, in the manner it may direct, conclude that the popular vote of the nation rather than the state will control, almost surely it does, given the way the court confronted that clause and these issues about individual electors. Second potential option, what if a legislature said, all of our electors are going to vote for the Republican candidate? or the Democratic candidate, or the Green candidate, without any consideration of the popular vote of this state or any other state. Again, that sounds kind of out there, but it was the practice in this country in the early 19th century before political parties had become as established as they are and their role in the election process as well known as it is today. Now, that again is a, is politically likely to set off a real firestorm if a legislature chose to take that path. But could they do it permissibly with the Constitution? There's certainly a good argument that they could, given the way the court has read this provision broadly to confer a great deal of power on legislatures. If uh, a legislature decides to accept what it may see as an invitation in the Chiafalo opinion, that could have a big influence on the election in that state and potentially nationally in years ahead. That brings us to an end of our discussion today. We talked about yesterday's Supreme Court decision in Chiafalo versus Washington and uh, of the various parts of our Constitution that define the institution of the Electoral College. Uh, we looked at the one that lets state legislatures uh, select electors and, and set their qualifications. Uh, there was a case back in 1952 that ties directly into this one. The two of them together over a period of several decades reinforce that the part of the Constitution that says how electors are to be choosen, chosen gives a very broad grant of power to state legislatures, which could have, in the hands of an inventive legislature, a profound impact upon uh, an election, perhaps this year, perhaps some future year, given what the legislature's priorities and schedules might be. On the next episode, I look forward to talking about some other opinions we expect from our Supreme Court in 2020, including the potential blockbuster case about the Donald Trump tax return subpoenas by certain investigative authorities. You can follow this podcast on buzzsprout.com, and I very much appreciate you listening. Look forward to visiting with you again soon.